instead of jumping back into 1 Corinthians for this one-off, sort of close to Thanksgiving, I thought I'd do a Thanksgiving psalm, and I found out today that actually Carrie's doing a Thanksgiving psalm as well on Sunday. Thankfully, pun intended, it's not the same one. So um, he's going to be in Psalm 138, uh, but you can take your Bibles tonight and make your way to Psalm 107 with me. Psalm 107. And um, some of you may be looking at the length of it. It's 43 verses long and be worried. And uh, I, I don't know how long this is going to take. So we'll just be honest. Um, that's right. He did a flyby of the tribulation. Man, we could totally do 43 verses. <laughs> Psalm 107. I won't read all of it at the beginning here, but um, it'll, I think, become very clear as to why it's, uh, it's very often by many considered a Thanksgiving psalm. And even before we dive in here, I mean... I, Surely, you all have heard of the Thanksgiving story, at least how pilgrims arrived in America. But I thought I'd just give you a bit of a review here. Um, you know, the pilgrims, if you don't remember from sort of American history, were a separatist group in England who believed much like the Puritans that the the state of the Church of England was far too much like Roman Catholicism, didn't reform enough. And instead of seeking reform, uh, the pilgrims sought religious freedom and autonomy. So in that sense, they were considered by the state uh, and considered by the monarchy back in England um, a factious group, and it caused them a lot of difficulties. Um, I was reading uh, actually a commentary that mentioned this as well. It, it, James Boyce says, according to William Bradford, one of the original settlers of the first governor uh, and the first governor of Plymouth Colony, the, the pilgrims were, the separatists were hunted and persecuted on every side. Some were taken and clapped up in prison. Others had their houses beset and watched night and day and hardly escaped their enemies' hands. And the most were constrained to flee and leave their houses and habitations and the means of their livelihood. Um, maybe you remember this from your classes. Many of them fled to Holland uh, for sanctuary for a season, but even there they failed to find a permanent home until at last on September 16th, 1620, after many months of planning and preparing, they set sail on a ship named, anybody know the name of it? The Mayflower um, for the New World, setting their sights on Virginia in the American colonies, a journey that would take about 65 to 66 days, depending on how you count them, on, on the North Atlantic Seas. Again, Boyce records this. He says, while making their perilous three-month crossing of the Atlantic Ocean, they were without a home. Even the Mayflower did not belong to them. When they reached the shores of Massachusetts Bay at what came to be called Plymouth Colony, they had, they had a home of their own at last. 
During the first desperate winter, they constructed rustic shelters for themselves and thus established the first permanent English settlement in North America. But he goes on to record the difficulties that ensued. Four of the original small band of 102 passengers died before they even reached America. One just before the ship landed. Most terrible of all, half of the remainder died in that first cruel winter, he says. Only 12 of the original 26 heads of families and four of the original 12 unattached men and boys survived and all but a few of women perished. You know, all that trouble, all that difficulty to get to a new place, a new home. I'm telling you all that in introducing Psalm 107 because recorded, it's interesting, recorded in Governor William Bradford's account of the founding of Plymouth Plantation is found a quote from Psalm 107. Bradford writes around the time, probably of the... It must have been near the first Thanksgiving. He says this, listen, May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, after all they'd been through, our fathers were Englishmen which came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness. But they cried unto the Lord and he heard their voice and looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord because he is good and his mercies endure forever. Yes, let them which have been redeemed of the Lord show how he hath delivered them from the hand of the oppressor when they wandered in the desert wilderness out of the way and found no city to dwell in. Both hungry and thirsty, their souls were overwhelmed in them. Let them confess before the Lord his loving kindness and his wonderful works before the sons of men. And part of that is Psalm 107. You see, Psalm 107 is a thanksgiving psalm in more than one way. And it it becomes very clear, hopefully uh, you'll see that as we walk through it, that the chief reason here in this psalm for our thanksgiving is God's grace, His loving kindness. In fact, notice, look at verse 1 here. Notice how many times this word loving kindness is repeated. You see it in verse 1, His loving kindness is everlasting. You see it in verse 8. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness. That's repeated then again in verse 15, again in verse 21, again in verse 31. Begin to see a pattern here. And then lastly, the psalm ends in verse 43 with a call for us to consider then the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Listen, why, why should you be thankful this season? You know, as we enter sort of this next week, you know, the world is speaking of being thankful. And yet so many out there in the world don't know the first thing about what they're thankful for or who they're giving thanks to. And the psalmist here tells us that as God's people, the very first, if not the overarching thing that we should be thankful for, that we should focus and set our hearts on this season, 
and be reminded of is God's grace, his loving kindness. Uh, really, that word uh, loving kindness is hard to translate in one English term. It's probably best to simply understand it as God's loyal love that cannot be earned, which is why I think that the closest idea we have is grace. So is that what you're most thankful for this season? That's the question we need to ask this, this evening. But in order to help us focus our thanksgiving upon God's grace, um, the psalm here can be broken up into two very distinct sections, okay? Um, one is going to run from verse 1, if you're taking notes, all the way to verse 32 that calls us to very simply give thanks for God's grace. And then verses 33 through the end of the psalm calls us to give thought to God's grace. I've just taken, stolen that from a, a pastor friend of mine. Um, so we're going to walk through this psalm tonight by seeing two responses to God's grace. First, give thanks, verses 1 through 32, and second, give thought to God's grace. Give thanks to, for God's grace, give thought to God's grace. You could even say we should... We should praise and we should ponder. In this season, that's what we, we need to do. Um, I'll just say up front, both are necessary, right? Because we don't, as Christians, we don't, want, we don't want to offer up thanksgiving that's thoughtless, right? We don't want to offer up thanksgiving that's just w- without thinking, without considering the the grace of God towards us, what is that? What has that actually done? And so the psalmist um, uh, exhorts us uh, to give thanks, but also to give thought. Um, just a brief comment on the setting here of the psalm. Um, many Many have noted that though there's there's not, you know, like that, uh, some psalms have stuff in the beginning of it, like the superscript that give you the setting and the occasion for the psalm. There isn't that here. Um, but some have noted that the arrangement of it, <clears throat> specifically with 105 and 106, uh, historically convinces scholars that it's, Psalm 107 has been applied to those Jews who are returning to Jerusalem after having been exiled in Babylon for 70 years. Um, Well, if you notice, actually just look back at the beginning of Psalm 105. Let me show you this. Why these three are often taken together. 105 begins the same way, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Notice 106 does as well. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And so these three kind of go together in one sense. Psalm 105, just to trace the progression, traces God's grace to Israel from Abraham into the promised land. Okay, bringing God's people into the promised land. Psalm 106 is the darkest of these three, and it traces, it, it, it displays 
It speaks of Israel squandering that grace and being kicked out of the promised land in 106. And so by the time you get to 107, 107 seems in the arrangement of these psalms to celebrate God's grace again in gathering his people back to the promised land. You see that in verse 3. Notice Psalm 107, even verse 3, speaks of how God gathered his redeemed from the lands. So that is said to be the setting, an occasion of this psalm. And it seems to be maybe even an answer to the prayer. If you look back at the end of Psalm 106, in verse 47, where they were kicked out, but the prayer at the end of 106 is, Gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name. And so Psalm 107 seems to be the answer to that prayer. And so many have said that's the occasion of the psalm. That the psalm, this psalm is used as an expression of thanksgiving of God's people for when he brought them back from Babylonian captivity, you remember, uh, back to Jerusalem, their homeland. So you can see how even the pilgrims sort of were able to take this and apply it even to their own circumstances. Um, <clears throat> but you'll also notice just a, another brief comment, and then we'll jump into it. As we walk through it, many of the circumstances described in this psalm into which God's grace reaches don't necessarily fit exactly with Israel in Babylonian exile. And so, um, listen to what one commentator admits. In themselves, the adventures here are not characteristically Israelite situation. Yet the fact that this is a piece to celebrate the return of the exiles raises the possibility that these episodes are different ways of depicting the plight from which the nation had been delivered. The scenes are at once fact and figure, scenes from life yet intended to represent Israel's experience. And so um, Boyce says this, the psalm was aptly used by the pilgrims and may be loved by us as well, since the examples it gives of the perils from which the people of God are delivered are at once common, varied, and suggestive. We can see ourselves in each of these situations. In other words, guys, the, the vivid illustrations we're going to see here of God's grace intervening into people's circumstances all different circumstances, by the way, all walks of life, all situations, I trust we'll be able to see how they relate to what God has done for us as well. Okay, so notice first, let's look at the first response to God's grace in this first massive section, um, verses 1 through 32. The first response that the psalmist wants to implore us to have in light of God's grace is most obviously give thanks, the giving of thanks. And notice first in verses 1 through 3 how he introduces this section. Verses 1 through 3 are really the introduction to this massive section, commanding us very plainly to give thanks to God. Notice, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. John Phillips says the 
The Lord deserves our praise. You know, you, you wonder, why does God have to command us to give thanks? He deserves our praise. Um, Phillips writes, it's, there's not much that we can give to God. He doesn't need our money. He could create gold out of black sand if he wished. He doesn't need our service. He has countless angels far stronger, swifter, and superior to us. What he wants is our praise and our thanks. And that's exactly what the psalmist commands here in verse 1. And there are two explicit reasons why we must give thanks right out of the gate. Because he is good, because God's character is very good. And secondly, did you notice, because his loving kindness or his grace is everlasting and unchanging and forever. Again, let me pose this to you. Is that why you're thankful? You know, I don't know what your traditions and Thanksgiving are, but sometimes, you know, I find myself around the table with some and the, the question is, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? You know, we're always trying to rack our minds. and We hate to go last because everybody says everything before you go. But really, the biggest category on the lips of Christians ought to be this. I'm thankful for who God is and for His grace. His grace to me. And that it's unchanging. Is that what you believe? Is your thanksgiving biblical? Listen, examine it this, this season. Again, I said so many people are going to be offering thanks next week. Just up into thin air. To nobody in particular and for really trivial things. Things that they actually think they deserve. That is not to be what we're thankful for and how we're to be thankful. If your thanksgiving is to be biblical, is it to the Lord specifically? Does it fall on and is it aimed at your God? And is it for who He is and for the grace that He gives? But notice verses 2 and 3 then in this introduction here for the first section. Verses 2 and 3 tell us specifically then not just why we should give thanks, but even who should give thanks. Notice, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. All of God's people, wherever they come from, the redeemed, those who've been ransomed from every corner of the earth, those whom God has went to great lengths, great cost to make His own from every conceivable place, those are the people who should be giving thanks the most. Let them say so. Look, Christians... We ought to be the most thankful, and not just the most thankful, but did you notice here, the most verbal about our thanks. The most, that ought to be, we ought to be the ones who are saying it the most. Right? It's, it's one thing to believe that. It's another thing to, for it to always be on your lips, right? And the psalmist here encourages us to speak, if you've been redeemed, listen, if you've been ransomed by God, that's not a small thing. Look, the word is, 
it, 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 it pictures a kind of rescue that costs somebody. Do you, do you understand that? That, that it, in, in the most biblical sense, it cost God to save you. And, and that ought to put thanksgiving verbally on our lips, not just, yeah, I'm thankful. In my heart, I'm thankful, but that I never say it. John Phillips says, if the redeemed of the Lord do not say so, who will? Never allowed the, the testings and troubles of life to rob us of the joy of our salvation and of a heart full of gratitude to God. So that, that's, that's how he begins. That's how he introduces this section. He exhorts us to give thanks. <clears throat> but notice then the rest of this Massive first section, verses 4 through 32, recount the varied situations then from which God graciously rescues His own. You know, it's like the song says, through many dangers, toils, and snares. That's, what, how, that's how we could describe the rest. And, and every one of these situations, there are going to be four of them that unfold for us very quickly that we'll briefly look at each of them. Every one of these situations was hopeless and paints the picture of some life-threatening uh, circumstance that God's grace entered into and rescued His people out of. And each of these four stanzas, the following four paragraphs, as you maybe even see there broken up in your, in your Bible, follows also the same pattern, okay? If you just notice, um, they all begin with a description of uh, a desperate situation. They all um, then uh, go on to um, include a cry for help to God, which which is the same refrain, notice, in verse 6, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. It's the same in verse 13. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. Verse 19, then He cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. And then verse 28. So, so you've got... A description of their distress, a cry for help, which is the refrain we just looked at, and then followed by a description of how God saved them and rescued them. And then lastly, every one of these calls us in response to give, calls these people to give thanks to God for His salvation. And that is also a refrain. You see it in verse 8. I pointed it out to you earlier, but or verse 8, verse 15, verse 21, and verse 31 are all the same. So there's a double refrain there. So all four of these follow that same pattern. And so let's walk through them. Notice the first one, verses 4 through 9. This is grace to the lost and weary. The grace of God to the lost and the weary. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. 
They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Notice the, the, the nuance here is in this first situation is that of a lack of direction and a lack of provision. These men, the picture painted here is these men lack the most basic necessities of life and they have no way or hope of accessing or finding those things. Notice verse 4, the, the desperate situation in wilderness and in trackless or wasted path. I mean, that's, that's describing something like a desolate place where as you walk, there are no paved roads, right? And you look back and try to see where you've been and you can't see a path. You can't see your footsteps. You picture the, those, um, in those movies, people wandering about in the desert where the dunes just are constantly shifting and their foot tracks are just covered over. This is referring to a place where there are no signposts, no tracks, no shelter, no food, no water, no hope, no cell phone service, no GPS, no civilization, which meant no supplies, nothing to shield them from the elements or to sustain them from exhaustion, you think about traveling and wandering about um, back then in the ancient world was not, it wasn't like making a wrong turn off the highway, okay, today. Um, you know, Kerry was just telling us a story in the staff about uh, his son, Nate. You guys know Nate, who uh, I guess he acquired some special license to go hunt some kind of animal <laughs> out in Montana. And so, recently went out there um, and I guess he didn't get anything until the very last night he decided to go out on his own and uh, and and basically they hadn't heard him from him in like hours and so two of his friends went looking for him and Carrie was like I thought he was sure enough they're gonna I thought I thought they're gonna find like a dead body frozen in the wilderness of Montana and you know but he you know Late into the night, he was able to get to finally get to a peak and to a spot where he had cell phone service, and he sent his location to his friend, and they were able to find him. But it's kind of like that. I mean, just think, out in the wilderness with no phone, nothing, no civilization, no inhabited place. That's the desperate desperate situation. Look at verse five, and so they were hungry, they were thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. They were exhausted. They were sapped of their strength and vitality. And and so what other recourse did they have? Then verse 6, their cry to the Lord and He delivered them. God, by His grace, meets their most basic need How does he meet it? Look at verse 7. He led them also by a straight way 
could say straight to an inhabited city. So let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Why? Because he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he is filled with what is good. Listen, Christian, God's loving kindness meets you at your greatest need. At your greatest, most basic need, He provides abundantly for you. That's what we see here in this first stanza. Listen, do you thank God for your basic provision? Do you thank Him for meeting your most basic and your greatest needs? This is what the pilgrims, no doubt, felt at that first Thanksgiving just to have food on their tables. This is God's grace. But notice in the next, the next two paragraphs, <clears throat> um, grace shows up not just to those who happen to have wandered off and gotten lost and are running out of their bare necessities, but in the next two paragraphs, um, <clears throat> God's grace finds those who have brought their difficulty upon themselves. These two middle ones, they're different than the other two and that they describe the, the distress and the plight of those who are actually guilty, whose, whose difficulties they find themselves in because of their own sin, because they've spurned God's will and ignored God's way. Look at, look at real quick verse 11. You'll see that in verse 11 because they'd rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. And then in verse 17, fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. So, <clears throat> Kidner describes this as love to the loveless, not merely the hapless. So, notice this 10 through 16. The second one is grace to the enslaved because of sin. The grace of God rescued those who were in bondage because of their sin. Notice their description in verse 10. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in a shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains. The shadow of death is the same despairing and dangerous language of Psalm 23, verse 4, you know, the valley of the shadow of death. This, this verse 10 describes a death sentence which included darkness and depression. But notice verse 11 tells us, again, the reason for their condition. They were locked away for life on death row because of their disobedience because they rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. And verse 12 adds to this dark and depressing dungeon, the drudgery of heavy labor with no hope for help. Not only was this a death camp, this was a labor camp. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. But they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and even in that condition, listen, He saved them out of their distress. God brings them out 
of even that condition, one that they brought upon themselves for breaking his law, and he breaks their bonds. He brings them out and breaks their bonds. Notice verse 14, he brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. One writer says, the amazing thing about this statement is that it is describing God's deliverance from a situation which was the result of people's own sin. Look, this is the mess that they've made. And yet God's grace still found them and was extended to them. Listen, think about that. How often are we reluctant to go to God when we know that the trial that we're in is the result of our own sin? It's the consequence of our own foolish disobedience. You know, the, the human heart just says, you know, you made your bed, you're going to lie in it too. And God's grace is not like that. <clears throat> it reaches even to those who've been enslaved by their disobedience. So then let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Why? Because he's shattered the gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. Listen, do you realize God has, God has freed you from bondage? That is what God's grace does. Not only does it give you direction and meet you at your greatest need, but he's also freed you from bondage and captivity. From what you deserve the sentence that you deserved, God's grace freed you from that. But notice in verses 17 through 22, not just, <clears throat> not just grace to the lost and weary and grace to the enslaved, but grace to the sick, the spiritually sick as well. The grace of God rescues us from the sickness of our sin. Look at verse 17. It begins kind of in a startling fashion. Immediately we know why these people are suffering and, and, and sick. It says, fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Um, these are the fool of Proverbs 1, verse 7, fools that despise wisdom and instruction. Look at verse 18. It describes the nature of their condition, the, the despair despairing nature of their condition. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food and they drew near to the gates of death. They are those on their deathbed. This is, the language of this is, this has been self-inflicted. This is self-inflicted illness. And they'd lost all taste of savor for food. You know, some of you had that with COVID, right? You lost your taste. Well, th these people, they were so sick, they didn't even want to eat. Their strength was sapped. No motivation to feed themselves. The language of the gates of death is that they're knocking on death's door. This is their deathbed. This is physical illness and sickness brought on by the folly of their sinful choices to the point of being immobilized, bedbound. 
And notice the refrain in verse 19, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them. Even in that condition, he saved them out of their distress. Verse 20, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. God's answer to their prayer is that he dispatched his word for healing. It came as an ambulance for their soul. God commands their recovery by sending his word. The language is of, as, as an angel or as a messenger of salvation and healing. And, and the picture here is unlike all these other scenarios, these other three, where God leads those in trouble out to a place of safety. Here, the people are bound by their illness to their homes. They were bedridden and paralyzed, too sick to even go to the doctor or come to worship. And so God goes to them. He sends them salvation through His Word. Listen, God, by His grace, (coughs) heals us from sickness. Well, the first, um, notice here, though, this last verse in verse 22. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His wondrous uh, tell of his works with joyful singing. You know, the first two stanzas, the first two situations, you, you may have noticed after the refrain that calls us to give thanks, they gave in verse 9 and verse 10 reasons. These last two, verse 22 and verse 32, actually add ways for us to give thanks. Notice here first... Um, it calls us to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. It calls for personal sacrifice, giving back to God and public testimony. Look, the same is true today, I think, for us, that that's how our thanksgiving should manifest itself. Um, but notice, not just uh, grace to the lost and weary. Let's see, how did we describe these other ones? Grace to the enslaved, grace to the sick. But lastly, notice grace to the helpless, those in danger. This last one shows us that God's grace reaches down to rescue us from impossible situations. Safety for those in the storm. Look at verses 23 through 27 first. Describe now the fourth situation of these people in peril. Those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters. Now, um, the Hebrews were not a seafaring people. So it's interesting. Again, this doesn't really fit exactly. Um, it, it's just as broad and uh, it's just these these all different kinds of circumstances, all different kinds of people. And, and here in verse 23, we find out th- these are experienced sailors who are often crossing oceans. <clears throat> and notice verse 26 and 27 describe for us what happens to them. when the Well, actually 24 and 25, a storm is brought upon the seas by the Lord. They've seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep, for He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. 
Notice how they felt in verse 26 and 27. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. How many of you have ever been on a small vessel open in the open seas? It does kind of look like you're drunk, right? <laughs> staggering about. They were seasick. They were at their wit's end. The phrase there is, they were at their skill's end. They had run out of their wisdom, in other words. I mean, so, so what this highlights is that what the distressful situation here highlights is that these are experienced sailors facing a circumstance that had stretched them and depleted their wisdom in sailing. Like they've run out of all their own resources. They, they, they've tried everything they know in all their experience and their ability and their skill could not deliver them from this circumstance. They were at the mercy of the waves and grace is needed for those who find themselves powerless, grace for our inability. You know, one, one writer says, if you've ever been like in a hurricane, I mean, it's just one of those things, like there's nothing there are some storms where you just cannot prepare enough. It's going to devastate your home. The, one writer says, The hurricane shakes us into seeing that in a world of gigantic forces, we live by permission, not by good management. These are experienced sailors who've been driven to hopelessness in a raging storm. They've exhausted their resources. They've reached the end of their skills and abilities. They came to a place, one writer says, where their own skills could aid them no more, where, where they were at their wit's end and all their wisdom was swallowed up, literally. And did you notice what's unique about this situation here is that God himself is the cause of their calamity. Do you notice verse 25? And for no other reason than, verse 24, to put on display his mighty power. That's really interesting. We'll come back to that here in a moment. But in this last scenario, God, listen, by His grace, both shows us our inability and delivers us from it. He does what you cannot. So all of these situations, listen, you were lost and lacking what you needed for life. God's grace intervened. You were in bondage and sick because of sin. God's grace intervened. You were helpless and hopeless in danger. God's grace intervened. Listen, we ought to give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Can you not relate to that in some way? That God has rescued you. He's met your greatest need. He's freed you from slavery to sin. He's made you whole and made you well in Christ. And He's done what you could not. What you, in your own effort, in all your skill and wisdom, like these experienced sailors, inevitably, life throws storms at you that you simply cannot solve. And God's grace meets that need and solves those difficulties for us. So let us give thanks. But notice lastly, very quickly, that's that first section. That's the first response to God's grace. It's to give thanks. 
and this will go much quicker. The last section, the second response to God's grace here that we're told to have, not just give thanks, but give thought. Give thought to God's grace. There are no more refrains here. You don't see the, repeat, the, the repeated lines anymore in these last two paragraphs. But let me just, here's the spoiler alert, why I say it's give thought. Look at verse 43. Because at the very end, the exhortation is, let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindnesses of the Lord. In other words, in these last two paragraphs, the exhortation is no longer let him give thanks, but it's rather now let him give heed and let him consider, which is why we're to give thought to God's grace. Look, this Thanksgiving season, guys, you should think much on the grace of God. Um, and notice uh, in these verses, um, God is calling us to be wise and to consider. Consider what specifically? Well, to consider the grace of God's sovereign power over every one of your circumstances. Yes, of course, give thanks to God when His mighty works are on display in rescuing you from life-threatening situations. But what about these other circumstances? Notice, verse 3, 33, He changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. In other words, He can take prosperity and bring it down to nothing. But notice there's 35, and he can do the opposite as well. All kinds of different circumstances and situations. He has the power to do both. He changes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water, and there he makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish... Uh, so that they may establish an inhabited city, and sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. Also, he blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. You see the reversal there? He can take a, um, he can take a prosperous land and make it a barren wilderness and vice versa. He can take a barren wilderness and make it a prosperous land. And notice the last paragraph, verses 39 through 41 as well, that um, not only can God reverse the natural climate, but God can reverse the social and political climate. That is verse 39, when they're dis diminished and bowed down through oppression, misery, and sorrow, he pours contempt upon princes and makes them wander in a pathless waste. He can humble those mighty kings, presidents, and rulers. And he can also lift up the social outcasts. Notice verse 41. And he sets needy, the needy securely on high, on high away from affliction and makes his families like a flock. Look, in... Here, here's the point in this last section. In every situation, look, God is able to humble the proud. He's able to raise the, um, the lowly. 
He's able to make barren those things that are prosperous and then um, to take what is prosperous and make it into nothing. His sovereignty can do that. And the point of this last section is, should we not thank God even still? Not just when we are rescued by Him, but also when we experience every kind of circumstance. In every situation, should we not still give God thanks? In other words, the point of this section is to cause us to think about how God's grace, in fact, God's graces, look at verse 43, the loving kindnesses is now plural, can actually take many different forms and extremes. Not just prosperity, but also humility. Even in times of lack and humbling, even those, listen, are from God's gracious hand. Even those are in His control and His sovereign purposes and His loving kindness. This the wise would do well to ponder. Notice verse 42. The upright see it and are glad, but all the unrighteousness shuts its mouth. Like the righteous rejoice at this truth, and the wicked remain silent. Uh, That's to say, in every season, whether in plenty or in want, Christian, you have reason to give thanks to God for His loving kindness. The righteous recognize that whether we're poor or we're rich, whether we have much or we have little, whether we're exalted or we're humbled, God's providence and His purposes all are simply just different forms of His loving kindnesses. And we can give thanks to Him for any and every circumstance, not just when He radically rescues us in our time of greatest need, That's what this last section is exhorting us to recognize. I'll just end with some quotes here. The final section reflects in a distant, settled way on God's sovereign workings by which His people are sometimes lifted up and sometimes brought low. The difference in tone and content is only a case of the the psalmist's honesty, depth, and spiritual sensitivity being greater than our own. He's acknowledging, listen, that not everything the people of God experience can be described as a deliverance and be received with utter joy. Yet, in spite of them, we can and should praise God for His wisdom and goodness. He goes on to say, believers should thank God for being what He is and acting as He does, and not only when things are going our way or we have it easy. Listen, here in this last sort of, this is why we need to ponder it. This is why we need to think about God's grace. Because we learn the wisdom of the psalmist here. And the wisdom is this. It is His grace that governs His power. So that all that He does is loving kindness to you. Listen, you can thank God. That means, you know what that means in your situation right now? If you're looking at, well, God hasn't saved me like that. I mean, I have a lot of needs and He hasn't saved me. 
He hasn't delivered me from my financial instability. He hasn't, he hasn't answered my prayers like these four scenarios in radically awesome ways and just rescued me and pulled me out of danger. And he hasn't done that. So I must not be able to thank him like the psalmist is calling me to. And this last section just does away with that, doesn't it? It just says, no, the loving kindness, listen, Christian, is not the loving kindness of God as we saw at the beginning everlasting? It, it doesn't change. It, it's, it's, it's the same. Now and forever, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, in poverty or riches, you can be thankful. Listen, Christian, you can be thankful because all is God's grace, right? It's all undeserved. And He uses all of it for His glory and for your good. Okay, so the, we can be thankful, can't we? That just fuels our thanksgiving. It makes it so that we can not just give thanks to God on a Thursday in November, but as long as God's loving kindness is everlasting, we can give thanks to Him always. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful, Lord, for who You are, for what You've done, for how You work in our lives and in Your providence. Lord, there, there are so many situations where it's difficult, we admit, to be thankful for and in. And yet you were reminded here in this psalm that we have no lack of reasons to be grateful to you. That all is of your grace. All is from your hand. Even the humbling, even the exposing of our inability, even that, even when we languish um, because we're under the heavy conviction and consequences of our sin, even that, there is never a circumstance that we might face as believers in which we cannot be grateful to you. And so thank you, God, for your loving kindnesses in all their, the different ways they show up in our life. May we, may we, may we cultivate more and more of this heart of thankfulness towards you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.